There's something to be said, too, about getting momentum, dude. So once you get momentum, I think, in any venture and that starts to snowball, I'm a huge believer. Then once it starts rolling downhill, more and more opportunities start to come and you start to attract these other things. So we would never recommend doing a bad deal. But I think that's a benefit of you having a network like us because we can always just eyeball these things and give you a second set of eyes and say, hey, man, yeah, you know what? I mean, it does. It makes sense. And we some of the deals that I bought weren't great when I initially bought them either. Right. And now they've turned into some of my best properties. So, right. right you've got to you know, you've just got to get in and get started. I feel like that's the advice that I would give most people. Welcome back to the Pursuit of Property podcast. Today, we are doing a roundtable on the market, the market changes we're seeing, what we anticipate to happen later on this year. And we've got two kick-ass guests on today. We've got Jason Pritchard, investor, entrepreneur, business owner, and Corbin Claypool, mortgage broker over at Vero Mortgage here in town. And obviously, my co-host, Scott Farrow. How are all of you guys doing today? I'm doing great, boys. How are you guys? Yeah. It's been a while since we've had either of you guys on. I Both return guests. Say, man. I'm excited to be back on the show, man. I love uh, I love talking with you guys, and it's uh, very timely, I think, this discussion right now. Beginning of the new year, a lot of changes happening in the market, so this should be a good one. Yeah. Absolutely. No, rates are coming down, so things are going to heat up here. I'm excited to talk about it. Cool. Before we get started, are you guys planning on continuing growth track into 2023? Is that something we should continue to plug? I know last year we had a lot of people who wanted to tune in and they tuned in. It's a good question. So actually, it's funny. Corbin and I just had a strategy session on Tuesday, just talking about the direction of where we want to go and what we took from doing it last year and what Mm -hmm. our goals are for this year. So I think, and Corbin, you can feel free to chime in. I feel like this year we're going to focus on doing quarterly uh, events mm. instead of monthly. I think we've got so many different things kind of happening and we're stretched a little thin right now. So monthly calls, I think, would not be the best fit for us. So we're really going to try to jam pack as much value into one big quarterly event and bring on some more really cool speakers and just try to add as much value as we can to the community. So yeah, I think we're going to try to probably bring on more speakers, maybe one every time. Who knows? But we're trying to figure out the first one. So brainstorming that yeah maybe bring on Wes again man (laughs) (laughs) cool I just wanted to get that out of the way um the point of our discussion today was that we've just had a lot of uh I don't know I want to call it bullshit in in the news about what's going on and we wanted to get the people who are uh boots on the ground in the day to day grind we wanted to hear your guys's opinion on what's going on in the market what people should be focusing on in 2023 and just your overall expectations of the next few quarters, you know, leading into the summer. Yeah, dude, summer's going to get crazy in my opinion. Um, just looking at all the data right now, rates are starting to come down. The The report that we're really looking towards is the May 10th report. And the reason why is because it's a year over year report. And that's supposed to have the, uh, the biggest basically difference in inflation. So if we see the May 10th report and it comes out and it's the biggest difference between the year over year, um, we're gonna see rates come down big time. So probably June, July is gonna be super busy. I'm, I'm already seeing a pickup on my end. So that's that's what I think is gonna happen. When you say you see a pickup, what are you seeing? Just an influx of new leads, new contracts, new pre-approvals. Uh, I mean, it's probably five times what we were doing in December. 
just a couple months ago. You know, it got pretty quiet there, November, December in the mortgage industry. Uh, But things are really moving along. And you were saying yesterday rates dipped under six into the fives yesterday? Yep, yep. So they, yeah, they're in the high fives. For a government loan, you're in the fives now pretty much. Yeah. For a conventional loan, you're in the high fives. Maybe low sixes if you kind of have a challenged credit score. But overall, things are... Or they're looking good. I think that's such a mental barrier for so many buyers too, right? To see that drop down like that. And then I really feel like emotionally that opens up the floodgates for people that have been sitting on the sidelines like, wow, this is like our opportunity right now because it was up in the sevens, right? And so for it to come back down, I think people that have been telling themselves we're going to wait, I think that's going to be big, man. So, 100%. That's why UWM price is in like 5.99, 5.98 because mm-hmm. a 5.99 feels way different than a 6%, <laughs> even though it's no difference at all. That 5.99 has that psychology yeah. Yeah. for sure. So, yeah. Dude, and Corbin, while we're talking about rates, I want to, I mean, if you guys are on video, I'm going to hold it up. I don't know how well you're going to be able to see it, but I want to talk about this really quick too, because we're talking about, um, you know, all these rates changing, you know, the best time to have bought a home. You're just talking about like the first time home buyers a couple months ago was probably like the key time. Right. for them getting in, right? There was a lot of uh, ability to you know, negotiate rate buy-downs and credits and repairs and all this stuff. But Corbin, you had put together a little bit um, of a mastermind a couple weeks ago. And it's basically, basically this graphic, like Scott was saying, a bunch of bullshit in the news. And you kind of outline this line by line, right? Like all the major news outlets year over year, you know, housing bubble larger than 2006 homeownership doesn't build wealth right it's better to rent than to buy in today's housing market and this is over the span of like seven years and then we've got another chart right right below it where if you had bought a house when the news had put out this headline right we're in a housing bubble over the past seven years you would have appreciated how much? $223,000 in yeah, equity, it, dude. It, it's nuts. And that's game changing for the average American, right? Game changing. Um, the media works off of fear. That's how they get paid, right? The more, well, not necessarily fear, but fear brings viewers in. For some reason, people like drama. They like hearing about that stuff. So it brings viewers in. Um, but it's not necessarily backed on actual good data and statistics. And that's why I follow guys like MBS Highway that really kind of break down the market, what we're seeing. So even in those tougher times, we can see, okay, there's light at the end of the tunnel here. This is not a 2008 crash like the media is trying to portray. Yeah. I think it, on the investing side, here's the two cents that I have. I really like this uh, this graphic that, that Corbin added. I, time in the market will always be timing the market, right? And this is 100% true based off of the numbers that Corbin showed. Just getting in and just being in the market over time, typically you're going to gain a lot of value and appreciation. And it's the same on the investing side. I feel like whether the market's up, down, or sideways, there's always gonna be opportunities and you just need to get in. You don't need to time it perfectly. Yeah, I mean, well, Jay, you you started in real estate, what, 2016? 2014, end of 2014. 2014, you've bought, you just broke 100 rentals, right? Correct, yeah. Those rentals that you bought at the start, I bet people were at, at that point in time saying, why are you buying? The prices are getting too high. Every year you probably heard people say like, dude, we're at the bubble, like everything's gonna crash, stop buying. You know, what are the some of the like maybe generic numbers of the homes that you bought in 2016, 2017 
when people were starting to say, oh, it's about to crash versus when you refinance them nowadays? My, my average rental, I'd say at the beginning, I was picking up for probably seventy five to eighty thousand dollars before repairs. So, <laughs> right. Crazy. So we so our That's business insane. model is we buy them, then we fix them up. We force appreciation by by adding value and, and repairing the property. But I'd say. 75 80 anything above 100 I, that was like a barrier for me mentally i was like i'm not going to make it work because typically those were appraising for like 150 to 175 so i really felt like my basis needed to be around that 75 80 mark then we put 30 40 into it refinance it and pull our money out those houses are all worth 275 300 now. oh my gosh so we've got so much equity we actually i was updating my we have a personal financial statement and we're updating everything and we've probably got close to about five million dollars worth of equity just in our personal real estate portfolio. oh my wow and so for me um you know, regardless of what's happening in the market now, like I was so intent on buying rental properties because I wanted to have an, an insurance policy, a hedge against anything else that's happened. Because, you know, in my life, we've gone through all these ups and downs and I just didn't want myself or my family to be in a position where if something, God forbid, ever happened to me or the market went sideways, we knew we always had a safety net to operate with. So, yeah, that's a, a perfect example, man, of, of just being in the market. Even now, right? Like we're buying properties now that we're planning on holding. We're just f making sure we get really good deals on them. That's what I was going to say, dude. Like everyone says like the best time to buy real estate was yesterday, right? So even, you know, even if rates are higher than they were a year ago and no matter what the market's doing, as long as you're buying your deals right yep. and making them pencil, they're still going to fucking pencil. Yep. <laughs> so right. you got to put all that other stuff aside and just make sure you're doing your deal analysis right, making your buy right, and then add into your portfolio or doing more deals or however it is. 100%. I had a follow-up question, Jay. Um, yesterday, I had a probably a four-hour text conversation with a uh, commercial broker down in, in San Diego. He's got a deal on Ivy. He wants me to buy it for 165 I know all day it's a good deal at well, one. 35 uh -huh. it's got a tenant in place this that and the other he and i were going back and forth running the numbers because i knew at this point i'm not going to buy this house from this guy yep. he's he's hard set on a number and he just fully believed that his house is worth a certain thing um i shared to him some of the deals that you and i talked about that I'm, we're locking up right now and i said you know these are what good deals look like yep can you run a little bit like of how you're looking at these deals nowadays. I know some people are still like taking 10% off of what they think it's worth today. I know some people are accounting for, um, they need much bigger spreads because mm -hmm. they're concerned about if the market were to shift. Are you still doing a lot of the stuff that people were doing in November or have you gotten a little more aggressive? No, we are. I feel like it, it's running. We've always been ultra conservative with yeah. our numbers and you guys kind of came up with our model of how we run numbers. And you can see even based off of back then, like we were always, I felt like more conservative than some other people. I don't feel like now is the time, guys, to really step down on the gas and be more aggressive with how we're underwriting deals. I actually feel like we need to keep that momentum and keep that same narrative and message that you're giving to that broker because the sellers need to understand that the market has changed, right? And so we're experiencing a lot of pain on the sell side, right? Like we're getting big buyer credits, we're getting price reductions, we're getting all these things. And in my opinion, that pain needs to kind of trickle down and transfer back to the sellers. And so I think now is the time to hold the line, not jump back up and uh, we're we're still being conservative with our numbers and we're getting we're having a very similar experience to you Scott we're we're talking to so many sellers right now where we're close 
It feels like a deal, you know, like we can both see it's like a 20 or $30,000 mm-hmm. gap that we need to bridge. And it's those things. It's like whoever blinks first is going to lose. So right now, I think we're yeah. just holding the line and, and we're being we're being patient. And that's goes back to one of the other things like we we've put ourselves in a position where we can be patient because we're bringing in revenue from our rentals. We're bringing in revenue from the brokerage side of the business. We're still doing deals on the real estate side of the business. So we don't have to be desperate right now and try to force something that's not there. Yeah. Well, that's, that's really interesting. Kate and I have had that, you know, conversation back and forth. We'll be like, uh, like it's so close. And you know, the guy yesterday uh, who came on Jace, he was talking about like, when you lock a deal, it's like a drug high and it's like, you're itching to get that. Like I locked the deal high, but you can't buy 20,000 higher. That's your spread to even make Mm -hmm. this a safe enough deal to do it. Yeah. We had one, a great neighborhood, a house that I really liked we got beat out by 20 grand and that's just it, right? Somebody came in and we were at 305. That was our absolute max. Somebody came in and offered 325 and I just wasn't going to do the deal at 325. Mm-hmm. And so I think you have to, you have to have a solid foundation in your business. You have to have a pipeline that's full of leads. So then that way, you know, if this deal doesn't work, we mm-hmm. can always pivot, talk to the next seller and then just keep it moving along. Well, yeah. dude, and Corbin, we've been talking a little bit You've started to shift your personal investment strategy this year. Can you talk a little bit about that and kind of what you're planning with, with the market changing and what your goal is? Yeah. So, I mean, I want to accumulate a bunch of rental properties and um, I'm just kind of getting started taking the steps. I have four properties right now in total, but, uh, you know, overall just trying to basically get wholesale deals, trying to figure out how to market straight to sellers. But uh, I've talked to a couple people and they basically tell me just focus on working with wholesalers, focus on your mortgage business because that's your, you know, bread and butter basically. Yeah. And then, um, you know, take a deal that maybe Jason wouldn't take, but take it on my side of things because I'm working on my mortgage business mainly. Even if the numbers aren't as good, I'm still willing to take it right now just yeah. to kind of get in the game because I want to get in the game and get some properties. So even if that cash flow is hundred dollars worse or something like that. I'm okay taking that right now. Yeah. So, well, and I mean, you're at a different place than a lot of people. I mean, your bad months are some people's best months ever or best years. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Corbin, I think there's some strategy there for people who might be sitting on the sidelines with like, you know, really good income streams or, or, right. you know, from like a, a primary job who are looking to get into investing, you know, right. Jason and I and Cade might need to hold the line because this is what we do full time. But, you know, a guy like you, if you see a wholesaler bring a deal out that, you know, maybe it's not like a slam dunk for you, but the numbers pencil, it might be worth capitalizing. Because I'm looking long term. I'm just looking strictly at appreciation and cash flow over the next five to six, 10 years. So if it's not cash flowing that great right now, that's actually okay with me for now. Uh, Obviously, as I get deeper into the game, I'd like to get better properties and things that are just cash flowing really well right off the bat. But um, as long as it makes sense and I'm not extended too bad. There's something to be said too about getting momentum, dude. So once you get momentum, I think in any venture and that starts to snowball, I am a huge believer. Then once it starts rolling downhill, more and more opportunities start to come and you start to attract these other things. So we would never recommend doing a bad deal, but I think that's a benefit of you having a network like us. Cause we can always 100%. just eyeball these things and give you a second set of eyes and say, Hey man, yeah, you know what? I mean, it does, it makes sense. And 
we some of the deals that I bought weren't great when I initially bought them either, right? right? And now they've turned into some of my best properties. So, right, right? you've got to, you know, you've just got to get in and get started. I feel like that's the advice that I would give most people. I think so. And I actually want to invest in California. I know a lot of people don't want to invest in California, but I feel like the, and I could be wrong on this, so tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like the appreciation over the long term is going to be better than in some other areas. Um, and so maybe I'm wrong on that, but it, you guys tell me. I think that you have a valid point. You know, that, that's what that broker was saying to me yesterday. He was like, well, you know, if you buy this for 165, you're, you know, you're 24. By the time you're 50, this thing's going to be worth a million bucks. Right. And I think there are people out there who will take that deal at 165. I'm blessed to have enough deals that I don't have to buy that. Right. But I think a guy like you, you know, if you're planning on staying in the area for a long time and you have a big mortgage sales business, you can afford to, to take a, a property like that and you don't need cash flow today. There's something to be said that if you look back every 10 years, it's always gone up. 100%. Yeah, and right. you know, California is not really the failing state that some conservatives might say it is. Um, but you know, and you're not gonna get the appreciation in Indiana, I'll tell you hmm. that. This is kind of on the same topic, but a little off topic. What do you guys think of section eight? I was looking at this pricing sheet for like areas like Clovis, nine three six one nine, and the the incentives have seemed pretty big. I could be I wrong. shared it to that broker yesterday. It seemed crazy. I'll dude. tell you, dude, we we are getting a premium from our section eight tenants right now. And so we've probably across the hundred something units that we have, I'd say maybe thirty percent of them, maybe more now, honestly, maybe forty percent of them are uh, with Section 8. Wow. And Section 8 gets a, a lot of a, ba a bad rap sometime. And I honestly, over the six years that we've owned rental properties, I've had overall a positive experience, dude. So I don't, I don't think that there's anything wrong. And right now, because we're seeing in our area, especially, there is such a shortage of available rental properties that people that are qualified and do have a housing voucher, it's just hard for them to get in. So, um, you know, right. we're able to get top of the top market rate. And we've had overall a very good experience. Section eight goes in, they do an annual inspection. There's an incentive for the tenant to keep the property in good condition. Now, every once in a while, are you gonna get people that go off the rails? Of course, but that's with every tenant. So Will California help repair some of that stuff? I heard they do, maybe they don't. No, so no. typically they'll do an annual inspection and they'll give you a list of things that says, here's what uh, the, the homeowner is responsible for repairing, here are the things that the tenant caused. Mm -hmm. And in order for the tenant to stay compliant and the homeowner, those things have to be resolved by the time they go do a reinspection, uh, okay. and then that's it. So Okay, because I was seeing some housing vouchers for like a four bedroom uh, well over 2k yeah, yeah 3700 30, 30, in clovis dude yeah wow i was like what the heck? yeah <laughs> you can almost buy a property just straight off the dude. mls and it's gonna cash flow great at that no seriously like we even in areas that i would say are like maybe c or d neighborhoods where i have a bunch of properties like i have two bedroom properties that we were getting eight hundred dollars and now we're getting fourteen hundred dollars for them so it's almost doubled in value in less than five years, just the amount that you can get in rents. It's crazy. That's so, nuts. Yeah. I think with these high interest rates, a really strong strategy for anybody investing is to, to focus on government loans and government programs because the government will always spend tax dollars, like no matter what the market is. And I think like if you're flipping properties, we've always talked about stay within the FHA limits, yeah. um, stay lower price point. If you're, if you're buying investment property, make sure that it's something that you could get up to section eight standard because there's section eight people ready to go right now. And uh, I think that's a really good thought process when you're looking at deals, you know, over the next few months. 
it mitigates a lot of your risk because you have options. Yeah. Right. So when you stay in those price points, there's a lot of different things that you can do with deals like that. You can wholesale them very easily. You can fix and flip them. There's usually a big buyer pool for first and second time home buyers. They're gotcha. easy to turn into rentals and the month and the numbers still work. Mm-hmm. So you can do a lot of different things. So I like that. That's where our investment business is kind of always focused on. We're really focusing on that right now. And, um, you know, you want options, especially in a shifting market. You don't want to be painted into a corner with just one exit strategy. And God forbid something <laughs> goes wrong with that and you're stuck. Uh, it's not going to be good. Well, Jay, I'll ask you first and then I'll ask you, Corbin. Like, looking at the rest of this year, I mean, we looked a couple months ago, right? And wholesaling properties became almost non-existent because all the end buyers, you know, kind of put themselves back into the cave. Yeah. Um, everybody was still signing deals that were way higher than, <laughs> than yeah. where they should be signing them. Um, and so with the outlook on the rest of this year, how are you guys, I know, you know, kind of mult- multiple extra strategies as always, but what are you guys really anticipating and hoping to double down in for the rest of this year, seeing how the market's going. So I, I think we're, it, I've always prided myself on my ability to adapt to things that are changing. I learned that when I was in corporate America, I've learned that over and over again, you know, now eight years into the real estate business. And so for me, we are right now, I'd say for the first half of 2023, we're really focusing on deals that we can be in and out of very quickly. So that means stuff that we can wholesale. And it's interesting that you're saying I agree 100% with what you're saying, especially the last quarter of 2022. It felt like, you know, unless you just had a no brainer slam dunk deal, nobody was buying it via wholesale. Right. And all the stuff that people were buying, problem tenants, Hmm. you know, major repairs, whatever, like all of that stuff was like a non-starter. Right. Um, I've noticed that the wholesale market has picked back up. Um, we're getting a lot more activity. We wholesaled a deal that we ended up assigning for 15,000 even over our asking price a week ago, right? So we're doing more of that. We're doing more wholesale deals. So things that I know that there's going to be a market for them. Fortunately for me, I've done a very good job in, in developing relationships where I can raise money and having access to capital. So that's a, a, a I would say a strength that I have that a lot of other people don't have. So I can identify deals that may or may not make sense as a wholesale, but I can still close on them, stick them on the open market and monetize them that way. So we're doing a lot of that. And then anything that we're doing typical rehabs on, they're just going to be things that we're going to focus on below the median unless it's a no brainer kind of deal. So I think uh, having the ability to adapt and shift, especially if you're a real estate professional, if you're a one trick pony, and that goes for agents, it goes for people in the lending side. I, I don't think having all your eggs in one basket is the move right now. I think you have to be able to make money uh, three, four, five different ways in this business. Um, and then once the smoke clears, then we'll be able to uh, get in a better spot. I think that's the first time we've had a phone ring on the podcast. <laughs> we've made it three years. This is how busy Corbin is. He's got somebody calling him for a long time. I think that's. A, I was looking around. Yeah. Going, Whose phone is that? <laughs> no, I Jay. I think uh, just touching on that. I think that's like the right way to look at it. And the guys we were talking to yesterday, they only want to fix and flip property. Yeah. And we had to, you know, tell them that our thought process is that you need to be completely emotionally detached yep. of how you're yes. going to make money. Yep. You just have to run it the most conservative way, and then once you have it in escrow then you can start deciding what you're going to do. Yeah. But they were like, yeah, we really we we really slowed down because we didn't do any wholesale deals last year because we wanted to flip everything, but we ended up not being able to get deals done. And we're like, well, last year it was a wholesale market. This year, you need to understand that 
you have to be able to monetize the deal some way and yep. you have to be completely emotionally void of how you're going to do it yep. and be ready to make the split second decision on what's the best option. Absolutely. That's good stuff. Dude. Okay. Corbin, yes, let's shift a little bit to home buyers, people who are either, you know, looking to sell their home, move into their next home, first time home buyers who may be looking to buy their home this year. What should they be expecting or anticipating for the rest of the year? Going into the summertime, uh, I mean, I think that's it's going to not be 21. I don't think it's going to be as competitive as that, but it will be very competitive. Um, I don't think you're going to be getting the same amount of seller credits. There's probably going to be some properties that you can get that on. You can maybe get some reductions, but if you're buying a nice home, you know, cookie cutter home, it's, it's not happening. Um, I actually made a video on this. I have a funny video coming out on Instagram because... Uh, they kind of missed their opportunity a little bit. They have a couple months left, two, three, four months, maybe less than that, and it's going to be gone. So so do you think as we continue towards the summer, do you think mortgage rates are going to continue to drop or are they going to stay the same? Absolutely. So Barry Habib is kind of like the mortgage rate guru, okay? He's who I get a lot of my information from. That May 10th report is super, super important. When we see that difference year over year on May 10th, the rates could potentially be down into the bid to low fives. That's what he's saying. I don't know if it's true, but he's saying that even a conventional rate could be five and a half, five point two five, and government rates could be high, uh, high fours. If we get that low, it's going to cause an absolute frenzy again. And not only that, it's going to cause a refinance boom again. Yeah. Right. Lenders are going to be getting their refinances back, <laughs> but a lot of them uh, are going to be getting EPO'd, right? Because people are yeah, going to be too, refinancing too within quickly. that six month period. But Overall, uh, it's still a great time to buy. Look, like Jason said, timing the market is extremely hard. Just buy and wait, especially if you're an average working American. You just need to buy a freaking home and wait and stop trying to time it. I've had buddies who wanted to purchase back in 2020, and he was telling me that the prices were too high in 2020. And now he's so priced out that he can't get anything that's really nice in his price range. You know, So, um, yeah, that's what I have to say about that. Dude, I've had multiple clients who keep saying and keep repeating the same phrase. I'm waiting for price, wait, waiting for this crash, waiting for this crash. And I keep explaining to them in different ways that, dude, it's, it's not, not going to happen. It's not <laughs> happening. And it's not even based on the rates. It's based on supply and demand at yeah. the end of the day. Yeah. And we still don't even have the supply yeah. that we had in you know pre-COVID levels, basically. Yeah. Right? 2008, if you look at the supply, it, I forget the number, but it was way over way over not Do you even have close. it in your charts i don't think i have it in these charts i should have brought that with me but in 2008 um yeah there's way more homes for sale than there's buyers now there's still a lot of homes for sale but not nearly as much and there's still good demand so we were just talking about this on a podcast that we did on tuesday about specifically about foreclosure supply so in 2010 hmm. when the supply was the most we had just on this is nationally like just under three million foreclosure properties. And right now in 2023, there's like 275,000. Yeah. So well, there's just, yeah, they're, they're like people that are waiting for a repeat of 2008, nine and 10. It's not happening. Nobody that I know or trust or respect their opinion believes that that is going to happen again. So I do feel like it's our job to educate our clients and put out like 
not a, a specific narrative, but just to tell the truth yeah. about what's going on. Like, guys, like Corbin is 100% right. I think rates are really going to drive the demand side, right? And so as we see rates drop, I think demand is going to come up. And we just don't have any supply. So my question is, where are the houses going to come from? Like, <laughs> Especially when all the buildings exactly. are not right. building. <laughs> so new builds are not coming, right? A lot of these people that bought in the last two, three, four years, right? They don't really have an incentive to sell because they got an interest rate in. with exactly. a three. That's so <laughs> even if the rates come down to a five, they're like, well, damn, dude, like I still don't really want to move. So that inventory is not going to come. Yep. Foreclosures aren't coming because everybody all of has fifty percent equity. All of and all of the dynamics that were happening in two thousand eight, nine, and 10 where you had these like liar loans and stated income loans and mm -hmm. people could just write down that they make X amount of dollars and nobody's verifying it. Like I do refis all the time. We're doing three refinances right now on our rentals and I'm very financially sound. We've got all our paperwork and it's like, it's like pulling teeth ass. for me to get a loan. <laughs> so people that it's got into these houses like for the most part, I would say were financially qualified. So it's not going to be like, you know, things are always going to happen and people are always going to lose their jobs and stuff will happen. But it's not going to be this like wave that we saw. So, yeah, yeah that's the that's the elephant in the room. We've got to have houses that are going to come from somewhere. And I don't know where they're going to come. I, I want to tie into that real quick. Go for it. I, there's a, the only other argument I've heard for the supply coming back is there. Everybody's talking about these massive tech layoffs. And I was talking to my dad who came on the podcast a while back. And his company is having to make some adjustments and he's like upper, you know, echelon. And they had this huge conference and there were stats that came out. Do you guys have an idea of what percent of the jobs that were made in the last two years have been let go? That's making all this news media. Mm, I don't know. What? It, 12% of the jobs created in the last two years. That's who got let go. That means that 80, what is that? 88%. Are still employed making those crazy incomes and those companies are you know already on the rebound hiring back like everybody who's getting laid off in that tech sector or not everybody but anybody who's deserving of making what they were making they're getting hired by other startups that are making a shit ton of money so it's like it's not like the tech sector is going to crash the economy and i would also think it's market specific too like i could see like a, a big tech layoff happening uh like Austin having an effect or, yeah in these areas where hmm. the employers are technology companies but in central california we don't have like google and you know what i mean and so yeah. i think you guys if you're investing or you're thinking about buying a home, you have to realize that it's all market specific. So you need to pay attention on what's happening in your market. Like the national news is OK, but it's not necessarily indicative of what's happening in your own backyard. So you really have to focus on the numbers for your backyard and do some own your own independent research, get opinions from people that are experts in that area and then make a decision from there. 100 percent. Yeah. No. Like Jason said, the rates are so damn our people are locked into 2.75, 3% rates. They're not gonna move anytime. And not only that, their payments are what a 600,000, like for instance, like my home, it was about 1.1. 1 .1. Um, and my payments, the size of like a $600,000 house right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Same. And that's how you that, did my loan, dude. And I, I talked with Jen. I was like, we're not moving yeah. anywhere. So <laughs> like, we have the 3%. I was like, I'm not moving. I was like, this payment is so comfortable right now. And if I had to get into my same house now, my payment literally would be double, dude. And yep. it wouldn't make sense for me. So 100%. like a lot of those, there's so many people in that situation. So these typical trade up buyers that every six or seven years, they buy a new house because they're up, you know, they want a bigger bedroom or a bigger that. I don't know that that's going to be happening like, yeah, it, like it has. It's really hard to stop going from a 3% rate to a six, right? Yeah. It's a huge difference. And so why not just stay in your current house and just wait it out, establish more equity. And then when the rates come down, then sell. Yep. So 
Or if you have a 3%, you know, uh, loan, you could probably pretty easily go rent that house. So if you're smart, you're like Kate and I coach clients every day. Like, why are you selling this house? Like I'm the person who's going to make the most money outside of you from selling this house. And I'm telling you, keep it as a rental. That's financially best for your family. And so it's like, that's going to keep supply low too, because people aren't going to sell an investment that they have super crazy equity in that they can go pull out a HELOC on and then keep a rental that's, you know, cash flowing. Mm-hmm. I've had a question for you guys. So what about like a luxury home, right? If you pull up rental meter, you can't get an accurate rent of what it, some, something like that would be like. Do luxury, like do they get for their own price or how does that work if you rent one out? So we're not property managers, but I will say that I've spent a lot of time talking to property managers because I have a couple clients who are trying to, you know, increase their portfolio. What I'm hearing from them is that they're having a hard time renting anything over $2,000 right now. So if you have a house that should rent for $2,000, they're having a hard time filling it because there's a large inventory. Because especially like if you're in Clovis East or something like that, like there were investors buying entire blocks of homes, like, you know, 10 homes at a time, and they're all sitting for rent. So like if you have a house where the payment is like, if you could cash flow under 2000 bucks, don't sell that house yeah. because you will have an amazing rental. If it's higher than that, it's very property specific. I gotcha. think luxury out here, cause I've rented a really nice house before. We sold our yeah. house like two that. years ago, had a ton of equity. I didn't want to just move into the same house. So I was fine like spending money on something nice. And I kind of keep an eye on that. And there's never anything that's like what I would consider luxury. Like what I think Scott is talking about, which is like a nicer higher end rental, right? Is different than like a mansion that you can rent out here. So I don't know. I, 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 and this is just all instinctual. I feel like if you had a really nice house, you could get a premium for it because you're going to be basically the only thing that's available. That's really nice. So I don't know. I mean, there's probably not a lot of people and I don't, it, I'm not suggesting that you go buy a luxury house to rent, but if we were to rent one of our houses, right, that's I don't awesome. think we would have a problem doing yeah, it. Yeah, I don't yeah, think either awesome. of you would. Yeah, yeah. And your point too, Scott, which I think is really good. Like my house, I couldn't go rent. Like even if I had a really great property, like a really great rate, unfortunately, like I talked with Kayla, because we're, we're, you know, we want to keep every house that we buy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right now, my house, like for it to make sense, would have to rent in like the 3000 range. That's just not going to happen. It's a four bedroom with the pool. Nice part of town. It's updated. It's got paid solar and everything, but it's it's not going to rent, you know, because that's just not what the market's asking right now. So for me, I think what's, what's going to ha- end up happening is anybody who has those homes like in that price point, they might consider Airbnb or finding like, you know, what's the, uh, the traveling nurses like that midterm oh, rentals, yeah, mid-term rental. you know, that's what I recommend, but you know, it's not going to be as great to keep as like a long term. So gotcha. you made a really good point. And if you have a, a property and you've got 3% or 2% interest rate, that's an asset in my opinion, right? Cause I don't know that we're ever going to see that's the best any debt. time again, yeah. rates in the twos, right? Yeah, so yeah, if yeah. you've got a more, a 30 year fixed rate mortgage with a two or a three in front of it, I, I agree with you a hundred percent. I would not be encouraging my clients. And if I had that, I wouldn't be thinking about selling that property. I would be thinking about how do I keep that for as long as I possibly can and figure out whatever else that I need to do to get the money to move into the second house. That I it's free to. money. Yeah, if inflation's is. 8% and your mortgage is 2% or 3%, you're making 5% yeah. a year keeping the debt. That's, like you're making yeah. money keeping that mortgage. Yeah, it is. That's such a huge asset. And I've, I've, for whatever reason, I haven't heard anybody say it the way that you did. And I think that is something that 
I think is a is a, is a story that we should be pushing because clients shouldn't be because realtors don't get want rich. to make sales. Yeah, you don't get wealthy by selling property. You get wealthy by owning property long term, yeah. right? You know what I mean? And you're 100 percent right. But I feel like we're kind of a cut from a different cloth of like your your standard realtor, right? Because all yeah. we're not we're not just hmm. selling houses, right? We yeah. have this whole investment side to our business model. And so I think you guys can give your clients a different story, right? That is probably more beneficial for them in their long-term future. Yeah. 100%. Well, and I mean, um, if you think about it from the standpoint of who's going to work with me in the future, it's going to be the people who have money. Yep. So if I can give good advice, that's going to lead to them having more money in the future. I'm playing a long-term game, give good advice, keep their interests at the forefront. And just like what we're talking about, when the market picks up, everything will come back and I'll be fine. So don't encourage people to sell to make a buck now. If you help give good advice, they're gonna buy 10 houses from you later. Yeah, the if, things that I regret are all the houses that I've sold over the years, dude. <laughs> Honestly, like I look back, talking back to what I was talking about with my rentals, like I have bought and sold so many houses that I picked up for 50, 60 grand just to make $20,000. The ones that I've kept that are worth like 250, 300, we've probably sold two or 300 of those over the years, dude. You know what I mean? And so yeah. like, that's the Another thing that 10 I million right the there. Most. Yeah, dude, it's the ones that you sell are the ones that you regret the most, man. So dude, well, but there's a point there. We were having this conversation, um, the other day where if you're newer or you're in a spot where you need to put cash in your business, like you, I guess you could go and figure out somehow, some way, one way or the other to keep, you know, those houses, but also find out, you know, magically money appear in the account. But sometimes having to wholesale a property you or do. You do. sell all those properties, you're going to have to put your business in a, in a cash positive, healthy position before, you know, going out and buying a shit. When our more. business model is based off of the acquiring of these assets, we yeah. do have to monetize some mm -hmm. of those, right? And that's a, something that you you have a different vehicle that brings yeah. money in. Yeah. Right, right, right. So I think when you have a vehicle that brings all this money in that isn't tied to having to buy, fix, and sell to bring money in, then you, you're you maybe even in a better position because you can really hang on to all the Everything. best ones, right? <laughs> yeah. Like with I, me, at the beginning, I did. I had, even though I regret it, like... I don't want to say regret. Regret's a strong word, but I had to because otherwise yeah. I wouldn't be here. Mm -hmm. So we had to sell all those houses <laughs> yeah. in order to be in a position to hold the ones that we kept, right? Yeah, no, I regret selling my fourplex. I had a fourplex and tower and I sold it early early last year. Yeah. And I think back, I'm like, damn, I shouldn't have sold that property. What the hell was I doing? It was a good cash. It was $700 a month extra. Yeah. Why did you sell it? Because I was trying to buy that Grover Beach house. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> Which was not a good choice at the time, but I learned my lesson on that. So, Well, and it's good you learned your lesson. Hey, I got a question, Corbin. There's a lot yeah. of talk in the media, and this is one of the other things that I see. It's like talking about uh, consumer financial debt and talking about like, okay, like the average American went from having their highest savings account ever to now that they're at their lowest savings account and they have the highest credit card debt in years and all that. You know, are you seeing that when you're talking to people, obviously you're talking to a specific group of people who are probably better financially prepared, right? right. but do you know anything about what's going on there? Yeah, so I mean, um, with inflation going up, it's killed the average American, absolutely. Debt's gone up and um, at the same time, savings has gone down like you just mentioned. So I've done a couple cash out refinances actually for people that need to consolidate just because they were struggling. Uh, and they had a, like a two or 3% rate and they didn't care. They're like, I know I need to get all this debt paid off, but they were deep in debt, you know, so they used their equity to consolidate. So we see that stuff sometimes, but not, not too often. 
where you, when you are seeing that, what are the mistakes that those people are making so that we can kind of warn people who are listening? Like, hey, look out, you know, this is kind of the unspoken snake that might sneak up on you. Yeah, I think it's just not living uh, below your means, but that too is very hard in today's society with inflation and the cost of everything and the average American salary, it's hard. I mean, I can't imagine living off of sixty to $70,000 a year. That would be very, very tough. So I think they just have to be super, super disciplined with their finances, not get into debt that they just do not need, only leverage things like real estate and things of that nature, and just focus on paying everything down and saving as much money as they can. And frankly, they need to raise their income. They need to get into something, wholesaling or shoot, doesn't matter, Amazon FBA. Just get into something and invest in that and learn how to raise your income, even if it's a side hustle. I know side hustles, some people are like, ah, side hustles suck, but if you have your main job, right? Find a way to make an extra fifty to hundred thousand dollars a year. Like if you're a teacher making sixty thousand dollars a year, figure out in the summertime how you can make an extra fifty mm-hmm. to hundred. Yeah, right? and that's going to be the biggest um, benefit for people that are in that situation. I, I think you bring up a good point, and I think the prerequisite to everything that we're talking about is having really good personal financial habits. If you're not building off of like a strong foundation of a disciplined personal financial habits, as you make more money, you're just, the money's gonna go out even faster. And that was something, Jen and I were that, that profile of these people that you were talking about at the beginning. We had two incomes. We, at, on a surface level, I felt like we were in good position. I was making good money in corporate America. Jen was a high school counselor, you know, so we, but we spent it as fast as we were making it, right? And we did not realize that we were accumulating the debt that we were doing and then we were doing things like doing cash out refinances to pay off $20,000 in credit card loans and a car payment and this, but we never fixed the problem. So then you just accumulate all that debt again, right? Yeah, so you just do it all over again, right? And so I think people need to understand that you do have to have a season in your life if you're really trying to change your, you know, the trajectory of your financial life, like where there's going to be some sacrifice and we're going to have to really budget and track all of these things and pay off of all of our debt. We got all of our debt paid down, all the school loans paid off, and then we started accumulating. So all the money that we were making was to kind of get back to zero. Mm-hmm. And then we built from there. And, you know, Cade and I are, are we live what you have taught us, but all the uh, money that we've made from our rentals, we haven't touched it. And we've tried to keep that money separate because, That's you know, awesome. um, I think a lot of people, too, who've had some early success, they, they immediately spend it. Yeah. So, you know, if you're finding some of these deals. <laughs> we, we had, sorry, real quick. We had the guy yesterday. Um, he told us he had gone and he uh, made 10000 on his first investment deal and went and bought a Benz right, right after. Benz. Oh. And uh, so, you know, I think. It's easy to do. It's easy to well, do. Well, and as the market continues to, to stay shaky, which I think is the right way to call it, you know, it's a volatile market, you might come into a really good deal and make a big chunk of change and don't go, you know, immediately go spend it, put it back into somewhere safe, because I think the market's going to continue to, you know, be volatile. Even if we see a big pickup in summer, I think it's going to take time to get there and you need to be smart about, you know, every big chunk of change, put it away. And then also use the tax code to your advantage, right? I heard Robert Kiyosaki saying, I love it. He's like, get in as much debt as possible if it's mortgage debt, right? Or if it's real estate, because you can write off depreciation. I mean, I'm not a CPA, so don't take my tax advice, but <laughs> you can write off depreciation, do cost segregations, write off the interest. Like my office, um, is my home office, and I write off that whole 1,200 square foot space, right? Well, and that's all you and use it for. 100%. And then, you know, so there's tax advantages, too, that the average American can tap into to help them get ahead. 
Yeah. All the information to become wealthy is out there, guys. Like the following the tax code, doing these things that we're talking about. It's not because you have a lack of access of information. It's just because you're not taking that information and then applying it towards your life. So all of these things have been done. We, we are not like coming up with this. We're just modeling what other people have taught us and just applying it towards our lives. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're getting to about that 45 minute mark. I would love for you guys to plug some of the ways that you guys are giving back this year. I know you guys are both huge in the, uh, you know, outreach into our community and giving information and knowledge. Um, you know, let's get people off the news and listening to the right people. What's the right way for people to get to you? I would say for me, I have spent the last year kind of building out my own personal platform. So if anybody wants to contact me, we just launched my website. It's jasonpritchard.com. And I have an initiative to really try to take this year and just moving forward all the things that have been really impactful in my life, how we've taken real estate mindset, all the stuff that has really changed the trajectory of my family's life and try to give that to as many people as possible. So we have tons of free resources on there. Corbin and I collectively are, are focused on growth track this year. So we're trying to provide value that way. Um, and so, yeah, if you guys have questions, concerns, feel free to reach out to me. I'm happy to be a resource. Your podcast. Yeah. Uh, Deal Champs podcast, too. So that's another thing that Stratton and Dean, Dean Rogers and I are doing. So we're doing a weekly podcast focused specifically on real estate and highlighting people in our local market that we've either done deals with or that have done deals to just show people like, hey, here's some insight into what people that are active in the business are doing. And here's somebody that's just like you that just did a deal, right, to try to demystify some of the things that are going on and show it that anybody can do what they're doing if they work hard. Perfect. Corbin. Cool. Yeah, I don't have a website or anything like that at the moment. <laughs> but, uh, follow me on my Instagram. I, I want to give back this year. That's my main focus is providing value. I think, especially for lenders, and, and you guys probably felt this as agents, in 2021 and 2022, you guys probably got blown up more than ever, probably more in 2022. And I realized that is just not as effective as it used to be because everybody's doing it. And I realized, look, I need to provide the most value to the industry as possible. So I have some things planned this year that I want to do. Um, I'll tell you guys more about that. But follow me on my Instagram. I did want to leave on this real quick. Is yes. that cool if I go? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so oftentimes people think the Fed fund rate increase mm. increases mortgage rates. And the reason why it doesn't is because the Fed fund rate increasing means that inflation is coming down, okay, because that affects inflation. And mortgage rates follow inflation. It doesn't follow the Fed fund rate. Fed fund rate has a little bit of an effect, um, but the actually recent hike actually helped us in mortgage rates. So I'll leave off on that. Yeah, so when you hear people in the news talking about rates, know that that's not the same as mortgage interest rates. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Fed fund rate and mortgage rate, two different things. So, Dude. Well, you guys, thank you so much for coming on. You guys have both been instrumental mentors, friends uh, to us. Really great sources of information. Absolute killers in the real estate space. So thank all of you guys for tuning in. We will see you next week on the Pursuit of Property podcast. Mm -hmm.